A reading from Mark. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. <clears throat> the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There was a cartoon um, in the New Yorker this past year. Uh, it had a sort of sophisticated woman looking uh, on a therapist's couch talking to her uh, therapist, and she says, First, I did things for my parents' approval, Uh, then I did things for my parents' disapproval, and now I don't know why I do things. (laughs) Kind of a great New Yorker cartoon, a little bit sort of laugh or cry, sad but true. Um, Parental approval and parental affirmation. Maybe uh, you are familiar with it. Odds are you, you are. Many of us, or at least if Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, was correct uh, in saying that a basic human need is that of for love. That needs, your needs, my needs, are not just physical or biological. That we in fact need, we have emotional needs. And they manifest themselves physically. And the need for love and affection is paramount. Now, parental approval and affirmation is a tricky thing. I think it's, um, we, some of us would say it only applies when we're living under their roof or even when they're alive. But I would say that the voices of our parents, the yeses and the noes, they remain with us long after we're out from under that roof. And long after they're gone, a lot of us hear those voices. Uh, we ask the question of our parents from the moment we're born, do you love me? Am I good enough? Do you like me? In fact, David Foster Wallace, the late author, took it that step further in his novel, The Pale King. He wrote, for what it's worth, I accept the basic idea that parents instinctively do love their offspring no matter what. But actually liking them or enjoying them as people seems like a totally different thing. It may be that psychologists are off base in their preoccupation with children's need to feel their father or some other parent loves them. It seems valid to consider that the child's desire is that a parent actually likes them as well. Your parents like you. Do you like your parents is probably a better question. Hopefully you do. What we have in the scripture reading that Ethan just read is a remarkable statement, 
declaration of God's unequivocal affirmation and approval of his son. That's what Epiphany, we're in the first Sunday of Epiphany, if you care, um, which is when we celebrate the revelation that, that, that Jesus is the son of God. He's not just the servant of God or the embodiment of God or the revelation of God. He is the son of God. So as cosmic or as theological as we can make this, if we're to take it at face value, this is also a father speaking to a son. And he says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You know, you can love someone and not be pleased with them, either in the particular or in the general. But the voice from heaven, it seemed important because it's recorded elsewhere. With him I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, the same sentiment uh, comes from the clouds. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. But I like this one better. With him I am well pleased. And for anyone who is familiar with parent-child dynamics, and we all are, theoretically. We are all children of someone. The... The fact that this kicks off Jesus' ministry, not, it doesn't come at the end of Jesus Christ's you know, work on earth. It comes at the beginning. It comes before anything happens. It doesn't seem to be attached to uh, performance. And uh, it, that is a remarkable thing. Now, I mean, parental approval, obviously, this, this, this might be a subject that is particularly close to home for you. Today, we've all uh, come from, uh, or at least many of us have come from uh, spending time uh, or running away from our families of origin over the holidays. And maybe your Christmas table dinner is a uh, political game, uh, people jockeying for one another's favor or making a statement that they don't care, (laughs) as if. Or maybe not even showing up. But this question, do you love me? Am I good enough? This basic question that we all ask, and we ask our parents first. When that question isn't answered, or worse, when it is answered with ambivalence, a person can spend the rest of their lives asking that question. They can internalize the accusation. They can go... Wherever they go and construct and look for substitute fathers and substitute mothers. I mean, have you ever had a relationship with someone where they were clearly um, working out something uh, with you that you maybe had no idea about for a while? And then all of a sudden they just explode one day and say, hold on. Why? Why would that set you off? I'm not your father or I am not your brother. Uh, This happens in work all the time. Sons or daughters uh, treat a boss as though that was their father. Or or a teacher as though that were their mother. And all of the negative... Or or, let's face it, you get married and uh, you treat your in-laws as though they were your parents. (laughs) Or you bring that set of issues to the table. And it is a sad but true uh, reality that when that question, when those questions, do you love me? Am I good enough? Do you like me? Am I likable? 
when they're not answered in a sort of resounding way, we will ask that question of anything and everything. We will ask that question of our career. We will ask that question of our transcript. We will ask that question of our bank account. We will certainly ask it of our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend. Life becomes a never-ending series of oracles that uh, everything becomes a potential answer to to these questions. In a sense, our life is just a series of measuring sticks. This is what it's called to live by the law. Everything is a potential judgment. You know, sometimes parents even ask these, these questions of their children. Do you love me? Am I good enough? A lot of times those children tend not to be coming home for Christmas. Um, you know, in the wake of, like, Steve Jobs' death, there was a lot of great writing about um, his legacy and the tech role of technology in society. And I happen to love Steve Jobs. He certainly has uh, done a lot uh, for my um, procrastination skills um, and enjoyment of lots of different music, but for free. Uh, just kidding. I pay. I hope you do too. Um, but I was reflecting. People talk about technology as being a sort of uh, bast- a sort of a beacon of progress and uh, the way forward, the future. And you know, I thought to myself, has it really been a vehicle of peace or happiness? Or progress for me personally. And I would say, if I'm being honest, I'd say no. It is another venue for me to ask the question, do you love me? Am I good enough? Maybe that next email will scratch the affirmation itch a little bit more satisfactorily. The next text. The next phone call. I mean, how many times a day do you check your email? The Onion ran a wonderful headline this past week saying... Uh, man decides it's just about time to uh, return to the website he visited 15 seconds ago. (laughs) Machines that promise control but deliver the opposite control us. They recontextualize our inner agitation more successfully with each passing year and model. The Bible has a word for it. It's called idolatry. It's a basic human dynamic. Things that we think are will control, we can control, control us. And that uh, is just another way of saying, we ask the question, whatever, we take whatever venues we can. Maybe uh, you're a person that can't handle criticism. You've been told that you don't have a thick enough skin. You know, I, I was asking a friend of mine who works for the Wall Street Journal, and I was saying, you know, so-and-so writes such great, thoughtful columns. Why don't you have them write more? And he said, well, truth be told, they're impossible to work with. You, you uh, edit a preposition and they take it as a major affront to their personhood and value and artistic credibility. Now, little criticisms like that cannot affect someone in that way unless they find a major foothold inside. Unless you are looking, to that, that, that somehow you're using that little editorial remark as an um, answer. You are twisting it into some comment that it's not. You are imbuing it with an emotional weight that it was never meant to carry. Do you know anyone who takes everything personally? Or are you that person? You know, the, the issue here is not necessarily you know, writing columns 
or having a job where you don't have to tiptoe around someone on your way to the restroom, though it sort of is. Um, the issue is love. If your relationship, if another person, every sort of response and word out of their mouth and decision they make is somehow a potential answer to the question, do you love me? That's an exhausting way to live, and it's actually an unloving way to live. You can't love another person if you're just looking for an answer all the time from them. You can't love a child if you're looking for an answer from them all the time. That's an overly detached, that's an attached love that doesn't um, have anything to do with the person that it's aiming at. It's completely self-serving, although it's not, it's not like we control these things. It's not like we mean for this to happen. Now I want to give two examples of what this looks like. One, what it looks like not to receive the answer. And one of what it might look like to receive an answer. The first one appeared in the Atlantic Monthly this past month. An article about male silence and its consequences. A psychologist is writing a book on male silence. I've heard that it's a problem for some men that they can't uh, express their emotions uh, in an articulate way. Or at least uh, when asked to. Um, it's, a, it's an urban myth. But um, a well-adjusted suburban father uh, named Patrick, uh, he is at home while his wife is out of town and his son is away for a sleepover. And this is a happy, easygoing, successful guy. And his son comes home early to find his father sitting in the living room with a shotgun to his temple, mumbling, enough is enough. And this comes as a complete surprise to everyone involved with him, and he is hospitalized, and he has uh, he he goes completely quiet, and they can't get him to open up, and the psychologist finally has this sort of relationship where he can get him to open up, and uh, this is how the psychologist who wrote the article describes it. Patrick had been running a very successful self-made company. He had built it into a business where, at the point where he was able to move his family into a larger house, the lakefront view. Everyone around him was aware of his success, and they were a substantial source of pride. People knew him as an easygoing guy with a good sense of humor, who was, in many ways, a model of successful manhood, as it has been traditionally defined. But then a series of setbacks occurred. First, a major consulting job did not pan out. Then one of his previous clients developed financial difficulties and began spreading the word that it had been Patrick's fault. His own business steadily slowed until he had difficulty making a mortgage payment on his house. And things went downhill from there, and then the economy crashed. Rather than letting his wife and close friends know about the struggles he was facing, he kept it all to himself. Over time, the gap between what people thought was going on in his life and what was actually going on grew larger and larger, and Patrick became profoundly depressed. He couldn't face working but he also couldn't face telling anyone. Each morning, he got up dressed as if he were going to work and either drove around the city or sat at a local coffee shop reading a newspaper. Eventually, the depression became so overwhelming that he saw no other way out. These are his words. How could I face them? What would they think of me? In their eyes, I'd look like a has-been, somebody whose time had come and gone only because he couldn't handle it. I should have been able to. Besides, that's not what I'm talking about. I should have been able to handle it emotionally. Instead, I fell apart and turned into a sniveling little boy. What was I going to say? Oh, mommy, please help me. I couldn't let people see me like that. 
Now, this is a man for whom a business reversal is not just a business reversal. It is an answer to the question, am I good enough? Otherwise, it wouldn't have the emotional, uh, devastating, disastrous effect that it does. He, is a, he was looking for an answer to the question, do you love me? In, in his job, in his success. And when things changed, he couldn't handle it. Now, by the way, this is uh, when John the Baptist comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What we hear in Patrick, and I have all the compassion in the world for this man. Uh, what we hear from him, that's the opposite of repentance. Uh, repentance is an admission of failure or wrong. And that for him, that's a, that's a fate worse than death. He would rather die than come clean about what's happened to him. And that's sad. Because when there's no repentance, there's no new life. There's no rebirth. It's just the true. It's just true. At least it's true in his case. And you know, the older I get, the more I find that this is not just a one out there scenario. That in fact, this is a problem that many people have. That this happens more often than we would care to admit. Okay. Negative example out of the way. And before we blame his parents, by the way, let me just say that you know, other defeats in life, other experiences can engender such insecurity. And in fact, sometimes it can just happen uh, just, because, just because. Some people have wonderful, loving parents. And they still engage in all sorts of self-destructive behavior under which lies the question, do you love me? Am I worth anything? Am I good enough? So no one's parents are God. And I don't want to at all imply that. You know, I do believe that The Onion is onto something when they publish the headline, Study Finds Every Style of Parenting Produces Disturbed, Miserable Adults. <laughs> um, there's no secret code. Yet, what does it look like when, what is the, when the question is answered? It's always a matter of grace rather than law. It's a matter of undeservedness rather than deservedness. I was watching um, this past week, the documentary Buck came out this past year, and it was not something I would be interested in normally. I don't know about horses. I don't know about farms. Um, I wish I did. And uh, this documentary taught me a lot, and I recommend it to all of you. I'm sure it'll be up for an Academy Award. It's about a horse trainer named Buck Branneman. Maybe you've seen it. But Buck... Is a uh, he was a child prodigy at trick roping, which is lassoing, like doing really. I mean, they show footage, and you know, it sort of blows your mind. It's like I didn't know that was possible. But um, he and his brother were absolute, um, you know, child prodigies at lassoing, and they were on television and you know, state fairs and talent shows. And what come to find out, the reason they were so good at it was if, if they made a false move, their father would beat them within an inch of their life. And I'm not being overly dramatic here. Uh, like many, uh, this or sort of almost like a cliched story, but uh, he had to take a shower after gym class, and he didn't want to, and he was forced to by his football coach. And, of course, what the football coach sees are the welts and the, and the bruises and the scars. They immediately, uh, the police come, and they take the buck and his brother away from this alcoholic, mean, nasty, violent monster of a man 
and they put him with some foster parents. And Buck describes his first encounter with his foster dad. This is what he says. When I first got dropped off at my foster parents' ranch, I was so terrified of men. My foster dad-to-be, he pulled up in his truck, and he was tall, 6'4", looked like he was made out of rawhide and barbed wire. But he walked right up to me and said, You must be Buck. And I shook his hand, but I couldn't even speak. You can be so scared that you can't say anything. No words come out. I just sat there, and my little knees were knocking together. I was a little guy. He spun around, walked back to the truck, and opened the door. And my heart just stopped. It's almost like a cult that's had some troubles. You don't have to do too much to make them suspicious or spook them. Uh, Just even move in a way that they don't understand or can't comprehend. And like that, the cult will try to defend itself. So when he came back to that truck, I didn't know what to do. He scared me to death. He came back and he threw me a pair of buckskin gloves. He said, here, you're going to need these. And they were just beautiful, and they fit me perfectly. I was so proud of them. We took off and we built fence all afternoon, but I wouldn't wear those gloves. They were a token of this act of kindness, of which I'd never experienced, just giving me something like that, and I didn't want to get them tore up. I put them in my pocket, and I worked the barbed wire all day with my bare hands. The foster dad doesn't wait to figure out what Buck's personality is like, what Buck might be bringing to the table in terms of work or ability. He doesn't even ask him to do any lassoing. He moves first with grace. He gives him a beautiful gift. He answers the question before they have a chance to interact at all. And what you've come to find out, this combination of Intense, horrible suffering and being met at his most vulnerable moment with love, undeserving, gracious love from the outside has made Buck into a a horse trainer that is essentially, I kid you not, he is Jesus with horses. Watch, watch the movie if you don't believe me. I didn't know what that, if you want to know, what does Jesus with horses look like? Watch this movie. Um... And you will find out. He basically has pioneered an entire approach to horses that doesn't involve uh, punishment. It involves sort of encouragement and love and uh, listening. And it actually works, too. So you can put it in the bank. So this act of grace as opposed to an act of law, the kindness precedes the deserving and it makes all the difference. You know what? It normally has to come from the outside. Men and women for whom the question has been answered, and answered in a resounding way. I'm not saying all of us have these moments where we just have this one-time epiphany. (laughs) Pun intended. Um, People, you, you probably know someone like this, who just had this knowledge that they weren't going to look to other things to answer questions for them. They had had those questions answered, and they were free. They were released from those questions. They were able to go out and live their lives. They could do anything. Imagine what it would be like to be free, not to look at everyone as a potential father or mother substitute. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? 
you know, to a lesser extent, John the Baptist is, uh, he does embody this kind of depersonalization, which is profound. What does he say here? He says, someone is coming, the thongs of whose sandals I am not I'm unfit to stoop down and untie. He goes to great pains to talk about how he is not in the same category as this man that's coming. Later on, he says, he must, in reference to Jesus, says, he must increase, I must decrease. He's more concerned with the message, with, uh, with what God has in store than, it, than, than in how it has any bearing on him. Do you know anyone like that? That would really, you know, you know what, I choose not to run uh, for re-election. I, that's, that's not a political statement. I'm just saying, like, that can really uh, take themselves out of the equation that has that kind of depersonalized relationship with the important things in life, that's not asking the question of their career or their bank account or their husband or wife. So they, they're free to actually choose what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, what their gut tells them. Now, of course, Jesus. This whole scripture reading here is about Jesus being released from that need. And when he's released from that need, he is released to, to love. And to love those around him, and to love you, and to love me, and to do so at a cost to himself, an enormous cost. Christ weathered the sort of criticism and resistance that I can't even fathom. Of course, he weathered more than just resistance. He weathered a crucifixion. He was killed. That's the sort of love we're talking about. He is affirmed by the Father before any of that happens. Now perhaps you had wonderful parents, and I hope you did. And the insecurities in your life seem to be a thing of the past. In which case, you know, that's a blessing. Cherish that. That's a wonderful thing to the extent that that's true. Maybe your experience can give you some compassion for people who haven't had that, or for whatever reason, are still asking the question. But you know, if you don't, if you, if this question was never answered for you, if it, if if you're, if it's not being answered sufficiently by your professional life, or by your romantic life, or by your spiritual life, or by your own feelings about yourself, what we hear here is that there is a word that supersedes all of that. What others think of you, what your accomplishments reflect, and what you think of yourself. When Jesus dies and rises for you and for me, he does so so that these words of God apply to us. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the answer. You found it. As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no. But in Him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Amen.